And now the Holy Spirit through John is about to tell us how Jesus' zeal for the temple led him to drive out the traders who were there. But before he comes to that bit, after he's talked about the water into wine, in verse 12 we see how Jesus goes down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they, they stay there for a few days. Now, you think, why is John telling us that? They could have gone straight from water into wine and then told us about the trip to Jerusalem and the temple and the controversy. Why is it? This goes back to goes back goes down to Capernaum, spends a few days there. Well, there may be more to it than this, and if you try, if you if you're able to think of a better reason, then then let me know, right? And I'll be able to say it's it's back to an ACA. Um, but I wonder if he's at least, at the very least, really wanting us to know that this event is is connected uh, to the previous one in time. You see, if you just skip that bit, and he says, oh yeah, and then one day Jesus went down to to Jerusalem, we might have thought that this is the same incident that Matthew, Mark and Luke are recording, just that John puts it here for a different reason, but by giving us that information we know that it can't be the case because he places it very clearly not long after his first sign, separated by a few days in short stay in Capernaum, and then we have this. And so this is the beginning of his ministry. Uh, the other incident recorded by the other Gospels is at the end of his ministry. Now, some people worry about the fact that Jesus did this driving the traders out of the temple more than once. But I tell you, in three years of ministry, there are all kinds of things you do more than once. Well, what's the problem with that? So let's have a look at the passage. we we'll start from verse 13. Verse 13 tells us the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, Deuteronomy 16, 16, just don't, don't, don't look it up, you can, not, you can just jot it down. Uh, Passover was one of the times when the Jewish men would have to appear before God at the place that he would choose. Uh, and that was later turning out to be Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in obedience to the law, in verse 13, goes up to Jerusalem. Up, because it's a higher elevation. And Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem. And what he finds there is terribly disturbing. Verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now why? Why is that terribly disturbing? What's, I mean, that's not such a bad thing, is it? The oxen and the sheep and the pigeons. Why? They were sacrificial animals. It's good to have them sold so people can, can buy them there and sacrifice them. We're going to carry them all the way from somewhere else. And the money changes, well, it wasn't Thomas Cook or American Express, you know, changing currency from, from ringgit to dollars for the tourists who come. No, no, that's to pay the temple tax. Every male adult Jew was supposed to pay a temple tax, and they could only pay in one kind of coin, so people from different parts of the world who came could change their money into the right one before they, before, before they could pay. Oh, Pretty useful enterprises, really. It fits quite nicely into the temple scheme. But obviously, Jesus doesn't approve. And you know what happens? Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temple. Hey, their tables. And he overturned the temple even bigger than that. <laughs> and he told those who sold the pigeons. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What's going on here? What are they doing that's, that's so wrong? 
Well, for one thing, they were trading in the court of the Gentiles, and so they were depriving the Gentiles of the chance to be in the outer court of the temple. And certainly, when he does this again at the end of his ministry, he talks about the temple being a house of prayer for all the nations. And so he would highlight that issue. Furthermore, there was probably corruption and cheating going on, pilgrims being overcharged and the temple authorities pocketing the money. Certainly, when he does this again at the end of his ministry, he will call it a den of robbers and highlight that issue. But this time he doesn't mention either of those issues. He just is angry that his father's house is a house of trade and he dries out the traders. Now, what is the significance of this from the Old Testament? There are three passages in the Old Testament that help us understand it. Firstly, in the book of the prophet Zechariah, which we read just earlier, God spoke of the day when he would bring judgment to the nations. Now, as you read Zechariah, you'll see that he's using, he's using terminologies that, uh, uh, that are, uh, are, from the, are from the time, but he's, but he's writing in such a way that it's, uh, uh, it's way beyond that, isn't it? Um, that it's, uh, it's not a literal thing. Uh, but God speaks at a time when he would bring judgment upon the nations and and after that, the whole nation will be holy. And even the bells on the horses will be holy. Right? Inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And every pot in the land will be so holy, in verse 21, that you can even boil the meat of the sacrifice in it. Not just the pots in the temple, but every pot in everyone's kitchen is so holy. And on that day, verse 21... There shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts. The day was going to come when that prophecy was going to be fulfilled. And the whole land will be holy. And on that day there will be no trader in the temple. And Jesus enters the temple and gets rid of traders in anticipation of that day. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The second Old Testament passage is from one of the Psalms of David. Uh, John, uh, John explicitly draws it to our attention in verse 17. The disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And that psalm is Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, David is crying out to God to save him from his enemies who hate him. And why do the enemies hate him? They hate him because they hate God. It is for God's sake that David suffers. And David says it's part of his, uh, his um, he, he's talking about that, that he has suffered for God's sake. And he says, the zeal for your house has consumed me. His passion for the house of God is why his enemies hated him. Now, the temple had not yet been built in David's time. It was his son Solomon who was going to build the temple. And yet, David was indeed passionate about it. He did all kinds of things in preparation for it. And the Psalms could have had its initial meaning, therefore, in his life. But as in all the Psalms of David, David prays as the Christ, the anointed one. He is the one whom God has chosen to be king over his people. And he points forward to his greatest son, the true king, the true anointed one over God's people. The one who God promised would, would rule not only the nation, but the world and and so it would be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And like David, Jesus would cry out to God to save him from his enemies who hate him. And 
Like David, they hate him because he hate, they hate God. It's for God's sake that Jesus would suffer. And zeal for God's house would consume him. His passion for the house of the Lord was as why his enemies would hate him. His act of clearing the temple, not once but twice, would be one of the acts that lead to his death. And his passion for the house of the Lord in a different way would also be a thing that leads to his death. But we'll come to that later. The third significant Old Testament passage here is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Now have a look at it with me, either on the screen or in your Bibles. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, who, wh- wh- who's the fulfillment of that? John the Baptist, isn't it? Right? We, we've just seen that in the, in the, in the previous, uh, previous uh, chapter. And then, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see? John the Baptist comes first, and then the Lord comes to his temple. But it won't be a friendly coming. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings to the... Sorry, I've lost my thought. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. God was going to come in judgment on the temple. And only after that, pure offerings are going to be pleasing to God. Now, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in different levels at different times. Uh, at this event, in what happens in the week Jesus died, in the death of Jesus himself, in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. But here is the initial fulfillment. And it follows the sequence that Malachi gives. John the Baptist, and then the Lord comes to his temple in judgment. And so, so far, what have we seen about Jesus? He's the one who brings holiness to the whole land, not just things that were previously considered holy in the the temple. He's the one who will suffer because of his passion for the Lord's house. And then he is God come to his temple in judgment. But there is even more about Jesus that comes out in this passage. And it comes out because the Jews were concerned to find out if Jesus really had the right to do what he was doing. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? You come in here and, and start you now kicking people out of the temple? How do we know that you're for real? And Jesus gives them a sign in verse 19. Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Huh? What's he doing? He's challenging them to destroy the temple. And then he's going to raise it up. Now, fat chance they're going to do that, right? Sounds ridiculous. And verse 20, the Jews respond. Uh, They said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? How can Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. What does this mean? Well, look back at John chapter 1, verse 14. 
Remember John chapter 1 verse 14, we looked at it a few weeks ago. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is, means pitched his tent or tabernacled. And in the Old Testament, Israel was traveling through Egypt, uh, from Egypt to the Promised Land. God spoke to them in Mount Sinai 1,500 years before Christ. And one of the many things he told them to do was, through Moses was to build this tabernacle, uh, a mobile temple that he could dwell among them. And they did. And when the tabernacle was complete, the cloud of God's glory filled the tabernacle and God was dwelling among his people. And in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. God in our midst. Jesus, the true tabernacle. And then in Israel history, the tabernacle was eventually replaced by the temple. We saw just now, David was so keen to build the temple, but God said, no, it will be built by his son. And so Solomon, David's son, built the temple in Jerusalem 960 years before Christ. And again, that was a place that God dwelt among them, the one holy place. The place where people could go and meet God, where the sacrifices would be offered, where prayers would be heard, where the law would be taught to the people. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, the cloud of God's glory filled the temple. But after generation upon generation of rebellion and sin, God's glory finally left the temple. Ezekiel saw it in a vision. God departed. And in 587 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was ruined. But the prophet Ezekiel saw a new temple in a vision. Again, the temple in a vision was not a literal temple. Because from that temple, water flowed to the surrounding lands, getting deeper and deeper and deeper as it flowed out, making even the sea fresh. It was a symbolic thing. It was a picture of the future in the categories of the past. Like our Zechariah passage was. And God's presence with his people, pictured as the temple, was giving life to the nations. Now, back on a literal level, the temple was rebuilt when the people came back from exile. And though the young men cheered, the old men wept when they saw the temple because it was pathetic by comparison to the old one. Nothing like the great temple of Ezekiel's vision. Between the Old and New Testament times, King Herod did a lot of work in renovating the temple. Essentially, he rebuilt it, enlarged it. The whole process had been taken, had already taken 46 years, hence the comment by the Jews. They think contractors in Malaysia are slow. But you see, that wasn't the real temple. The real temple, the temple to which all temples were pointing, was Jesus himself. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. The real temple. Because Jesus really is God's presence with his people. Giving life to the nations. He is God dwelling among us. And so in chapter 4 of John's Gospel, Jesus is going to tell the Samaritan woman that he will give her living water. Like the water that flowed from the nation to the for the nation from for the nations from Ezekiel's temple. Jesus, the true temple. And God's presence in the temple pointed forward to God's real presence in him. The sacrifices of the temple pointed forward to his sacrifice. The priests of the temple pointed forward to his priestly ministry. The purity of the temple pointed forward to his purity. And when the temple was misused, when it housed traders instead of prayers. 
that it failed to point properly to him. And he has every right to come and straighten it out. And that's what he's doing. What sign will you show us for doing these things? Destroy this temple. And I will raise it in three days. You know what? That's what the Jews did. Jesus' statement understood correctly is not as ridiculous as it sounded at first. Because the temple that they destroyed was his body. And he really did raise it in three days. And so, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus really did have the right to clear the temple, because he really was the real temple that the physical temple was pointing forward to. And so they believed the scripture, all the pictures and the promises about the temple in the past. And they believed the word that Jesus had spoken, that he was the fulfillment of it all. And it all comes together in here. Jesus is the true temple. Now, we could leave it at that point, but if, for the sake of an excursus, we were to go further into the New Testament, we would see that we are also temples in a lesser sense because we have God's Spirit dwelling in us. And so our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 6. Which is why we cannot participate in sexual immorality. Because that would be to use something that is sacred for something that is sinful. And we will also see that we were built together into God's temple. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul tells the church in Corinth that they are God's temple. That is the people, not the building. And God dwells among them by his Spirit. And so the expression of the temple that we see now is, is us, individually and, and together. And then if you keep on going further on, you'll see that on the last day, at the end of the new creation, there is no temple. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, I saw no temple in the city. It's talking about the, the new Jerusalem. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In fact, the imagery there shows the fall of the new creation. Is the, is the most holy place. So those who are with God in the new creation, those who are saved will live in God's immediate and intimate presence for all eternity. No more temple. So that's just to show you where the theme of temple is going the rest of the New Testament. It never goes to a place, never goes to a building. First and foremost, to Jesus. Very clear in our passage. And then in a secondary way, those who believe in him are indwelt by his spirit. And ultimately, to the new creation. But just before we go to the implications of this, I just want to show you a detail that's incidental but very telling. That is, in the midst of his righteous judgment, Jesus was actually very gracious to the traitors. Do you notice that? Go back to verse 14 to 16. There he is. He makes a whip of cords, he drives out the sheep and the oxen. What would have happened if he, he drive out the sheep of the oxen with a, with a cause and drive them out of the temple? What would happen? Well, the traders were going to follow them, isn't it? To retrieve their cattle. He overturns the tables and he pours out the coins of the money changers. In verse 15, 
Of all the money changers do, of course, they'll quickly pick up their coins, eh? <laughs> Not like the, you know, the accident on the road a few weeks ago? All these coins came all the road, everyone's screaming, pick up the coins. But when Jesus got to the pigeons, what does he do? He tells those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What he doesn't do is open the cages and let the pigeons go. Because right? they wouldn't be able to get them back, would they? Everything else, he, he's, he's not going to break their rice bowl, even though they're trading in the temple. In the midst of judgment, he's kind and thoughtful and measured in his judgment. That's very interesting. Anyway, what does this passage teach us? Big thing. Big thing of the passage, first of all. First and foremost, as we're going to see over and over again in the Gospel of John, it's a revelation of who Jesus is, isn't it? Always John is trying to show us who Jesus is. He's the one who's going to bring holiness to the whole land, so that everything, even the bells and the horses and the pots in the kitchen, is going to be as holy as the things that are in the temple. He is the one who's going to suffer because of his passion for the Lord's house. He is God himself come to his temple. And most importantly, in this passage, and this is the main part of this passage, I think, is that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. How do we apply this passage today? How do we live in light of this passage? Should we, as a church, drive Jessica out of the bookshop? Right? Jessica is the lady who runs the bookshop in the corner there. Because Jesus drove the traders out of the temple. I mean, after she's trading in the cathedral, isn't she? Why? Why not? Well, do you want to talk to each other for a minute about that? Yeah, go on. Just turn around to the person next to you and say, "Do you think we should drive Jessica out of the out of the uh, out of the bookshop?" All right. Okay? Have you looked at that? Okay. Should we drive Jessica out? You like to see me try, yeah? <laughs> Why not? Sorry? That's right. This isn't the true temple, is it? Right? Uh, we, Jesus is the true temple. Right? We don't go to a physical place anymore to meet God. We have Jesus, we meet God in Jesus, and so the cathedral is not a temple. Right? This building is not a temple. The temple is Jesus. Jesus is the house of God, not this place. There's nothing sacred about the building, therefore no reason why you can't use cathedral property for a bookshop. It's not too holy for a bookshop, so Jessica's safe. Right? So what are the implications of the passage, really? If Jesus is the true temple... What does it mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that we meet God in Him and only in Him. Remember, in the Old Testament, God did not permit sacrifices to be offered anywhere else except the temple. Once the temple was there, 
and stop sacrificing anywhere else. In fact, when they did sacrifice other places, God wasn't happy with it. And people had to come from far and near to appear before God at the temple. That was God's command. No sacrifice except one place, the temple. And that's the same today. God doesn't accept into his presence anyone who does not come to Jesus as the new temple. No sacrifice for sin apart from the sacrifice that's made in the body of Jesus. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except through me. And God commands people from everywhere to appear before him in the temple. Come to him in Jesus. And that is where we meet God. That's the first thing. Secondly, it means that worship through Jesus is far, far bigger than coming to church on Sunday. But sometimes we give people the wrong impression about worship because we tie it to a building. But friends, we see that we don't have to worry about sacred buildings. Nothing wrong with having a nice building. It's nice to have a nice building. But please don't call it God's house. It's not a temple. God doesn't live there. We mustn't give people the impression that he does. Sometimes we've heard people say, oh, I cannot swear on cathedral property because it's God's house. Yeah. Implication, okay, it's fair outside, lah. But this is not God's house. God dwells uniquely in Christ. God dwells, He is God's house. God dwells in us by His Spirit. We are God's house. God has fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. He has made our whole lives holy. The bells on the horses, the pots in the kitchen. Whatever we do, wherever we go, ultimately we are serving God. And so our work, our leisure, our relationships, our reading, our everything is meant to be a sacred service. And the place of worship is not a church building. The place of worship is the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so yes, when we come here and we sing to God and to each other, that is worship. And when we hear God's word and we respond to him in prayer, that is worship. When we speak to each other and help each other press on, that is worship. But it's only worship if we are doing it in the true temple, in Jesus. We could be doing it in the church, and not in Jesus. And that's not true worship. And the true worship of Jesus is not only in church on Sundays, but in our homes, in our workplaces, in our cars, in our cell groups, in our shopping malls, as we seek to honor Him in everything we do. How we treat our children, how we help our colleagues, how we drive our vehicles, how we encourage our brothers and sisters, how we spend our money. All of that is worship. And we worship in, through, and with Jesus. Whether we are at church or in the world. Because we are always in Him. He is the true temple where we worship the Father. And so all of our lives are to be a worship to Him. Thirdly, it means that we are to be zealous for the true temple. Remember what was said of Jesus? Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was zealous for the physical temple that pointed forward to him. And if Jesus was zealous for the physical temple that pointed forward to him, how much more should we be zealous for the real temple? And the one thing we must be zealous for is the purity of our temple worship. What does purity of our temple worship look like? 
I'm in the real temple with Jesus. He's the true priest, the true sacrifice, the true presence of God. We must be zealous for his role, his temple. We must be vigilant against anything that would diminish from his role as a true temple. When other people set up other mediators, whether they be sacrificing priests who become a mediator, or so-called worship leaders who think they can bring you into God's presence by specific techniques, or whether it's to Mary or the saints who think that, who, who, who people say have got leverage with God, you've got to say no. Be zealous for the true temple. Drive out those influences. Jesus is our priest who brings us to the Father. He is our one true mediator. And when people want to make something other than the sacrifice of Jesus, something other than the once and for all death of Jesus on the cross as the sacrifice, you've got to say no. Whether it's the Lord's Supper they're thinking of, or they're thinking of our own good deeds, or extra work, or self-punishment, or flagellation now, or purgatory later, or anything that anyone will think will cleanse us and bring us closer to God apart from Jesus' death. You've got to say no. Be zealous for the true temple. The true temple worship that is in Him. Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that takes away our sins. People want to make the church building a temple. Say no. The temple is Jesus. Guard the sanctity of the temple. Jesus is God's house. Jesus is God's house. Don't let him be diminished among us. And finally, if you are a trader, then repent. Traders were in the temple, but they were there for business, not worship. They were there to make money, not to serve God. And there are those today who appear to be in Christ, but who are not actually there to worship, but they are there for their own benefits. Seem to advance their careers, gain worldly wealth, to seek fame and popularity, or whatever other reason it is. And if you are one of those people, then cry to Jesus for mercy. Because you're not truly in the package. You're not truly part of it. And when the day of the Lord comes, he will kick you out and you won't be part of the new creation. For after the day of judgment, Zechariah says, there will not be a traitor in the house of the Lord. And yet the Lord is gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. So turn to him and beg his forgiveness. Ask him to make you a true worshiper, one who worships in the temple of Jesus, who trusts in his sacrifice made once for all upon the cross, and who comes to the Father through him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us the Lord Jesus as our true temple. Thank you that in him we meet you, that in him we can worship you, 
and that our worship to you is in, through, and with him, and in no other way. Thank you that he is our great high priest, ever lives to intercede for us. We know that we are not worthy to offer you any worship, and yet he is our representative, and we worship through him. Thank you for that. Thank you that he is our sacrifice, made once for all upon the cross, and that we have been accepted to you. We can come into your temple, appear before you, because of what he has done. We thank you for that. We thank you that through him we truly know you, and that we through him we can worship you and please you. Father, help us to guard these precious truths. Help us to be people who worship in an ongoing way in the true temple of our Lord Jesus. Help us to be people who offer you the true worship that you deserve. Now, Father, we, we pray that you help us not to, not to get caught up with things that will distract us from the true worship, from the true temple. Help us to remain firm and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus is indeed our Lord and our King. He is our cornerstone and he is indeed the true temple. By his death and resurrection, he has brought in the new kingdom. So let us stand as we anticipate joining him in the new kingdom, as we thank him for his son uh, who gave his life for us, as we sing our next song, the kingdom song. Please stand. Uh, you will need your sheets for this one. Uh, first verse is missing from the, uh, the slides. So you'll need your sheets. Item number 10. Uh. Day by day, your kingdom grows. Stone by stone. This temple reigns hidden truth we've come to know. May your king. 